Anthony Tonnen, welcome to Haku Meets Humans. Kia ora. Thanks it's, for having me. It's very lovely to have you here and I'm <coughs> very grateful of your generosity with your time. Oh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, I did want to start off with something sentimental um, that I realised when I actually moved into Grey Lynn um, was that I stood in the intersection of the Grey Lynn shops looking at um, what was Kokako and, but it's now Postal Service and had like an, in, a very visual flashback to a very rainy day looking at the exact same site and I realised that when Brad and I had been in two cartoons and we just started and we came up to Auckland, you had very kindly met us for a coffee in Grey Lynn. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, cool. um, and it was at that, at Kokako, at Postal Service. He must have been living in Greyland at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I was on that corner for years. Oh, my yeah. God. And I, when I had arrived there, I'd never been to Auckland before. So I, I just had streets and buildings and I had no sense of where I was. But standing at that intersection, it reminded me of um, what I think was a really, again, a very generous and kind thing for you to do to, uh, for some young kids because you, you, you know. I was a pretty young kid then too. Um, I had very little value on my time. <laughs> it, was great, it was a great spot. I mean, being you know, Grey great Lynn at that time was was cool. I remember seeing um, the Vales check into the Surrey Hotel down the road. I, well, you know, I could tell it was Finn because of his hat. And right. I was like, wow, look, it's the Vales. They're, they're, staying, they're staying in Grey Lynn. I think um, I'd feel the same way if I saw Finn's hat at the Surrey Hotel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. My God. What was, were there any venues around? What was like the, the closest venue to you? Was Freedom Argolis happening when you were in no. Greyland? No. Um, no. Uh, I mean, Auckland in 2010 when I moved there, um, it, was, it was cool because it was going up and it, and it actually got better for venues the whole time I lived here until 2017. Um, but there was the wine cellar. I, I'd already played some gigs at the wine cellar. That was part of why I moved up and Whammy Bar. But I, then over the time, there was some more, some that came and went, Golden Dawn, obviously. And mm. um, there was some wine, like back in 2010, there were more gigs at the Thirsty Dog. And, oh, sorry, not the Thirsty Dog, Dog's Bollocks. Dog's Bollocks. Yeah, and there were some other ones that I forget, you know, there was like someone mentioned the rising sun the other day. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, the consistent thing in the 2000s and 2010s is uh, the, other th the other three main music cities, Dunedin, Wellington and Christchurch, uh, they all went through phases where they'd have almost no venues and suddenly there'd be lots more house parties and things, whereas Auckland always maintained a steady amount of places to play. Um, and it seems to get better. And, uh, you know, talking to other people only five years earlier, like 2005, there weren't, weren't really the sort of, um, at least there weren't the indie music venues to play in. So it was a good time. It was such a good time to come up to Auckland. Yeah, because you came up to Auckland from Dunedin. Yeah. Um, and there was a little bit of like a Dunedin movement to Auckland like over a span of like maybe two or three years. Yeah. Were you at the front end? Uh, I'm always, I, I arrived just after that, so I didn't really mm. know everyone yet. And I was, I'm always curious, like were you one of the early movers from that Dunedin thing up to Auckland? I mean, who knows? Like there could have been heaps of people before me. I didn't know that many people before me, a new couple, but um, definitely a bunch of my friends in Dunedin came up around the same time. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, I thought about when you leave Dunedin, you're you're allowed to move to Wellington or Melbourne, um, <laughs> and if you move to Auckland, you just don't tell anyone in Dunedin. <laughs> and but I, and I tried. I, I sort of spent some time in Wellington, spent some time in Melbourne, um, and you know, Melbourne. It felt like it was really it was going to be really tough starting out in music in Melbourne because being from New Zealand was sort of it was worse than being from Tasmania. Um, it just it, there was no there was no street cred for coming from New Zealand or anything. Um, and so some some people d did it and did really well 
going to Melbourne, but I thought it was going to be tough. And then going to Wellington at that time in 2010, um, 2009, 2010, when I was thinking about it, Wellington had been the cool city for, for 10 years and it, people there knew it. Um, and they were also maybe sick of people f- moving from Dunedin. Um, and so when I sort of implied to friends there that I was thinking about coming up, they were sort of like, oh, yeah. Uh, it was just kind of a feeling of like, oh, yeah, and more competition for my flat or, <laughs> or my government job. Um, so people didn't seem super excited about that. Um, whereas when I even mentioned the thought of coming to Auckland, people then were just like, yeah, come, it'd be great. You know, like it was just, people were really excited at that time about, I think people that were in Auckland in 2010, the attitude was, yes, we're such a crap city, but but let's have some more people and fix it. Or or at least be an interesting dystopia. Um, (laughs) And it was cool, you know, like there was just an attitude of like more is more, more more people is better. and so, yeah, I, I came up amidst that and, you know, like it changed pretty quickly. You know, the, the bus system was really bad and it got better, you know, uh, but it took, it took a while to realise it had gotten better. And then the problem was by the time it had gotten better, Auckland had also gotten really expensive. Um, so, I don't know, cities go through phases. They go through phases where they want people and they're, and they're really hungry for people. They go through phases where they're a bit skeptical of more people coming. They um, go through phases where they have venues. They go through phases where they don't really have venues. Um, I feel like Auckland has, uh, and and now I don't really know because I'm on the outside of it. But it feels like it's in another good phase, if if only because it had the crisis with housing a little bit earlier than everyone else. So it's actually started to do something about it a few years before other cities have. And you're starting to see the results. You're starting to see houses being built. And at least um, at least it's been improving its public transport and things like that. So there's a, there's a sense that at least it's going the right direction, even if it, it's got so far to go. Do you think those, these phases are circular? Or do you think like Auckland with, do you think New Zealand with the housing crisis or Auckland with the housing crisis brings it into a different arena where it has its own completely different phases as well? Oh no. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, 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 I don't know. Um, I hope it's not circular. It would be depressing if it's just, <laughs> if it's just a back and forth forever. I think we need to actually fix some of our structural problems um, mm. so that we can, you know, we can stop worrying about those those kinds of cycles. Do you because like your your band was called was formerly called Tono and the Finance Company? Like yeah. you think about these. I, I assume that that wasn't just like a half finance is lame. Let's put it in our name. It's like you do think about that kind of stuff or have an interest in in kind of bigger system ideas. Because I know you're so interested in transport, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah, I've always been interested in bigger systems and things, and um, I think even my songwriting there always needs to be some implication of some bigger system in there. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a little bit of a, a <laughs> um, throwaway choice of name and it was actually just that. I mean, you see, it's, I mean, speaking of cycles, I mean, in 2008 when we decided that name, um, like every second TV ad was good credit, bad credit, we want you, um, finance companies. And... Um, I feel like we're in an era of that again, you know, it's, it's depressing. It's depressing that people are still, you know, getting, getting sold these cards and everything that can, or, you know, payday loans and all, all that kind of stuff. So, so you are seeing some cycles. But, yeah, I mean, that stuff always, always fascinates me. Um, I, and, I, and I loved coming to Auckland to see the, the wreckage of the, the GFC as well. Um, I loved what I called the Ponsonby Hole in the Ground, which is now Stuff and um, Countdown. Oh, um, right. But that was just a hole in the ground for okay. five years because um, it was owned by a, a finance company and they'd, they'd <laughs> dug that hole before actually getting resource consent to build the rest of it and Beautiful. thought that if they just dug it, 
then it would be too late. <laughs> but it didn't work out like that. You're, it's funny when you say like that um, your, your songs even ref, like allude to systems or something bigger. Like do you – are you and your, your art like a reflection of things around you, do you think? Like uh, or are you, do you know what I mean? Like are you influenced by your surroundings and what you're thinking about um, or is it more like you've got this art and then it kind of attaches – like I know it's a kind of chicken and an egg thing in a sense, mm-hmm. but like I, I guess the only way we tell is like you've moved around quite a lot of places. Do, do, has your topic and your art changed with the places you've gone to, or has it stayed quite steady in the way you're creating it and what you're thinking about? Hmm. Um. I, I yeah. I think I, I think it is a res- reflection or a response. Um. I don't think it's me. Um. Oh, but at the same time, the way that you find it is quite unusual. Like uh, it's a bit like what's that stick? It doesn't really work. But the thing, if you find a stick that's shaped like a Y, oh. and you're looking for water, um, yeah, I know exactly. So it yeah. do, it does kind of come from inside you, and and I and at at my core, the way that I write songs is to write for no reason with no. Um, no specific goal. Really? Yeah, I, I, I don't. I don't say I'm going to write a, a song about this and I don't say this is happening, I need to write about this. Uh, I just go into a room and hit the, and hit the piano until, until something comes. But, but then in terms of what comes out, it does seem to be, um, yeah, I, th- I think consistently it, it's a reflection of the systems and um, more and more it's becoming about the frustrations of the system we live in and the inability to get things done. Mm. Um, but, and, and that's changed, changed a little bit over time. That's so interesting to hear you say that because I have this, as like an avid consumer of your music, and isn't that a gross word to use? Um, I have this view what, for, of your music, uh, of it being almost like, my favorite journalist musician in a sense. And I don't mean that in just like, obviously the very um, upfront um, uh, example of that would be the, the paper mill, Matteo paper mill. Mm. But, but I, but I also mean in like, you know, drug trade in bars and, and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like, and so, and I've always really appreciated that side of, I feel like you're telling almost like on the ground humanistic journalism stories, but, but through music. And it's really interesting to hear it's it's hard to imagine that kind of effect being created without like the in, in, complete intention of that right at the start. I find that really fascinating. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, I guess what I'll do is I'll try to find what I want to write. Oh, you know, and so, sometimes it comes as music. Um, sometimes I get a couple of words. In, in the case of Matoda Paper Mill, it was an image I actually just saw the paper mill sitting on the waterfall and, and I wanted to write something about it. And, um, and then I will, once I know what I'm writing about, I will then go and research it the way a journalist would. Wow. I guess the difference is it's quite interesting. Like I, I don't follow a, a journalistic cycle though. You know, I, I don't really believe in being reactive. Um, like, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't like to try to react to what's in the news cycle or follow, you know, like yeah. in any part of the way that I work, I, I try to be, um, what's the opposite of reactive? Where I, I, I try to do what I want to do or, or whatever's, um, whatever's interesting me at a given moment rather than responding to what, whatever happens. I mean, and you have to be like that because songs take a long time to write. You can't compete with a news cycle. You can't, you can't write something in time with a news cycle. You always no. be a couple of years too late <laughs> when, by the time you put out the song. So it has to be, it has to have a sort of sense of permanence. So you've got to find something that you really, that seems to, I mean, just like with the magic dowsing stick, which doesn't work, You've got to find the source of water underground. <laughs> uh, you've got to find something that's that, that's that's a little bit more structural and and deeper, so that 
um, if that song's around in a few years, yeah. it's going it's going to be. Um, and you know, not that I always get that right. Uh, I mean, I've been. Yeah, I mean, some of my songs have been more ephemeral, um, but yeah, the way I'm writing now is I. I'll, I mean, I couldn't do it anyway. If I tried to just write about this week's news, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't feel um, like those were my songs. Yeah. You know. No, of course. Um, where along the I've always been interested in like what where you see yourself because um, I think it's such an interesting. I'd call you like an artist figure. Like I think I think it's it's actually it doesn't encapsulate all the things I think you do just by calling you like a musician or a, or a music person, but we'll talk about that. But it's more is your when you create it your intention is this are you making entertainment or are you trying to impact the world? And I know that's like two extremes of the continuum. Like where do you are you at a fixed point in that with 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 what you're existing as, or is that something that's changed for you over time? Um. No, I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to reshape the world somehow, you know. Um, somehow, yeah. I, 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 you know, and and it can be entertaining to do that, and I think that's great. I mean, if you can use entertainment to reshape the world, I mean, something interesting happened to me in the last couple of years, and that I, I I've I have gotten interested in particular system more than I have others and and that is public transport um, and I guess what I'm trying to do in public transport is use the same methods that I use as a songwriter and as a um, as a performer and and somebody you know running my own business and practice as a performer I'm trying to take that same the same methods of that practice to public transport to see if I can change a system around me or have some impact on a system around me but uh, in a different way through than than what I thought were the only ways to do it which I guess was like run for council or something like that um, so yeah I mean I'm definitely trying to change things around me but my, my job is to to be an entertainer and, and the most important part of my job is is to perform and, and make great shows um, that, you know, make reality more interesting. I, I mean, I, I, the thing that I always say that I think um, more than entertainment is is the, the idea of distillation of time. I mean, the only reason why I should be... Um, why I can justify getting a number of people to come into a room and spend an hour with me and pay money to do that is because I've prepared that hour much more than they have. And if I can spend 100, 200 hours on a prepared hour, um, then uh, you can distill time. A prepared, some an hour of time that someone else has prepared to be an a really excellent, interesting hour, um, you get the effect of um, of cheating time a little bit. You get an hour that's much more better than a normal hour. Mm. Um, much more, yeah, you're more enjoyable. You have more insight into things. You feel like you have experienced what otherwise will have been slow, cumulative <laughs> experience, I guess. That is such an interesting way to view the... Um, partaking in art, I really like that. Yeah, and I think I think that's how art generally works. Um, it's it, it is the it's the whiskey it's the distilled whiskey of time, um, and, and and that way it's the, whether it's entertainment is irrelevant. <laughs> there's some there's some art that isn't quote unquote entertain entertaining yeah. and a kind of. Um, you know, it might not cause you laughter or joy, or, or it, but it might make you feel something with twice the strength of um, normal. You know, if you sat sat down and sat on a chair somewhere, you know. Yeah, totally. Do you, uh, you know, just my opinion, but I I really love that idea because it kind of, for me, 
it reinforces for that the artist I think there is things to benefit from being uh, like rehearsed and being prepared and actually that the performance is, is, is it doesn't have to be just a version of the art or something just to have fun with I think that there's a as it goes in waves there are kind of performance styles that become really popular and I think for me I will always enjoy seeing a really tight really rehearsed really thought out thing um even if it's a bit dry maybe because it's so sorted out <laughs> which is definitely a problem sometimes yeah but I will always enjoy more because at least uh, than something that's a chaotic and and, and not in a good way um, right because at least I feel like I, I can at least make sense of what's going on and have some opinion about it as opposed to like, well, I don't know if, if is this what you really want to be presenting me? Do I have to keep coming back so that I get the proper presentation of what you're trying to do? Yeah. And I like your, uh, your, your, your kind of explanation of, of that phenomenon because I think it's, it's an important thing to sell to the public as well. Like, we are, like you said, we are taking people's time. Not taking, wrong word. We're bartering totally. time. We're taking it. We're taking it. But I think like they're willingly giving it for, and you want to, and what a privilege. What that, a privilege. That's the thing. Like, yeah. I mean, I just think we're what I've realised in the last couple of years is how privileged we are as musicians to have people's time, and um, and not just privilege, but there's so much value and potential in that. I, I still think it's amazing. I mean, I, you know, Netflix can't get. 40 people in Auckland to go and turn up at the Whammy Bar. I mean, if, if I mean, I'm sure they could if they put on an event. But the fact, you know, like if you'd see it with videos now, you put a video up on Facebook or, or, or YouTube or something, most people watch that for 10 seconds and then they click to the next thing and click to the next thing. The internet can't get people's time for, for very long periods and they're just sitting there. They're just sitting there with a screen open and they're still not able to get them to pay much attention to anything. Yeah. So the fact that um, a, a musician can convince even 40 people to go and turn up at Wine Cellar and be there for like three hours um, out of their house <laughs> on the public transport system to the wine cellar, then back. I think that's incredible and there's so much power in that and that's why, you know, the biggest thing that I learned with Railland was that because I could convince 150 people to go to a show with me, um, in the case of Dunedin, if I just convinced them, hey, hear me out, put in another 30 bucks each and we'll charter a train and we'll make a train exist as if, the public transport system that used to run in the 70s still runs just for tonight. And we did it, you know, like, you know, wow, you know, what else can you do with the power of 150 people who are willing to give their time and, and their, their money um, to, to have a great experience or, or to, to break out of the normal bounds of time, I guess, you know. Was, this, was that, Railland, I'm glad you brought it up, was that, that convincing, that idea, was that scary to you when you were doing it at the start? Or were you, were you like, how did you feel? Because that's such an out of the ordinary but requires organisation and confidence to do. Like, how did you feel doing it? Was it just as easy as it looked? As easy as that pitch just then, hey, we're going to do a cool thing as if the thing and just pay $30 more? Uh, it was just consuming, so it just felt like the only thing I, I wanted to do. Um, so I, I didn't... And maybe I was a bit too guns blazing. Yeah, maybe, maybe if I'd known how hard it was going to be in parts, um, I wouldn't have been so confident about it. But it, it seemed to happen pretty organically the way that something that you just really love doing. And, and, and it was a, it combined the things that I've been doing for so many years. I had many years of putting on gigs and I, you know, by that time, I, by a certain point in time, you know that if you, book the venue, if you are relatively organised with the posters and stuff, you, your gig will happen. It's, it, it's fine. Yeah. Um, so, it, yeah, it was a little bit scary. When we started adding, adding the chartering part, like chartering a train, definitely um, 
definitely there was a nervousness to um, taking on the extra cost of chartering a train and, and, and putting up a ticket price that was double what it had ever done until that point. Um, but I just felt like it would work and it seemed worth the risk at the time and it, and it worked really well. Yeah. Um, what was hard was with Railland, I, I decided that it was going to be every year. Um, it was, it was, and that I was going to rewrite the show every year. <laughs> and so the second year, I'm, I'm really proud of the work I made for that, but I, I really had to, it was really hard yeah. to, to write a whole new show for it in the second year. Uh, the third year ended up being a, a bit of a combination of both years. Um, which was good because we went to lots of new places and it, and it didn't feel right to give them the third part of a trilogy without the first uh, or, or the second. So it, it, it felt natural to do a sort of combination show. Um, but yeah, the, se setting such a big artistic challenge like writing a whole new so show. <laughs> and you know, it's, it's funny because people haven't even heard because I haven't released the songs really, I've only released a couple um, of live versions from Railland. So having this show that has its own songs and people don't know them yet and um, finding a way to melt that all into the show and everything, it's all, it's all quite an undertaking. <laughs> yes, yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Did you, is, is, is the only way to experience that music and those shows being there on that train to that venue? Like, is there, that's it, that's the... With the moment, we'll, we'll, we'll work on it. But I guess, um, you know, I'll, I'll see what happens with, with Railland. For, for now, I'm focusing on, on the new record. And um, I, I guess, you know, when I started in music, the, the album was the most important thing. And, and I still think artistically an album is a really important thing. Um, but my goal ever since I started was, was simply to make a, um, to have a practice and a career out of music. And um, what has become more important to having fulfilling work has been um, shows like Synthesized Universe or Railland. They've been the main vehicles, not the album. Because if you release an if you release an album, you, it just it just costs you money. Um, <laughs> like it's not it's no longer a very good vehicle for work. Um, it can be, but it, it's a it's a tough vehicle to create work around. Um, and the thing that I've developed with immersive live shows has been a, a much more sustainable vehicle. So I kind of got waylaid just after starting Leave Love Out of This because suddenly I had something that I could actually plan my year around and that would provide me with, with work um, and really fulfilling interesting work. Definitely all the things that I want to be doing in terms of um, giving people great experiences and, and something that seems to transcend the normal um, boundaries of life and time and, and things and, and, and test what's possible. Um, but now I'm, after that, uh, after doing three years of rail land and, and um, a year of a synthesized universe, I'm able to now um, completely focus on this record uh, which is good, and then but we'll we'll see what happens with the record, and then and then come back to Railland at some point. So yeah, so where does the motive? What's the kernel of motivation to coming back to the vehicle of an album? Oh well, it's always it's always um, it's it is you know still artistically very important, and um, it's it's just ready now. It's a, it had to it had to slowly get ready while those other things were going on. And then obviously had the, it got slowed down a little bit because um, Jonathan who produced it uh, is in the Beths. And so the Beths. Who became wildly successful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so things slowed down a little bit with that. Um, but also, uh, yeah, I, I got way late on, on these, these other sorts of shows. But, and, and then it prob we probably would have um, 
would have released it slightly earlier if it hadn't been for for COVID and things. But it just felt right, you know. Um, it, it felt like the time to make the record and to uh, put it out and, and to tour the record and get the band playing again. So it, it just seemed there's, there's a time to be doing certain things and this is the time to, to do that. Does it feel more after quite... I, I'm, I'm sure it was quite a nebulous process in terms of Railland and a synthesized universe because you've got so many different facets of, you're not just thinking about music, you know, like you're kind of creating the blueprint as you're creating the show. Mm. Um, whereas in, in an album and an album release cycle and a tour, these are things that you've done before. These are things that bands have been doing for decades and decades that have a far more solid blueprint. Does it feel, how, how do you, does it feel different? Do you feel like more focused or anything? Do you feel like? I mean, it's always changing. Right. Um, the, especially when you take as long between albums as I do, um, the map is completely different. So you you have to you have to work out how you, how you do it all over again. Um, but it feels good. It, feel, it feels great. I mean, I, I I haven't wanted to rush this album because I I know it's a good album. I know it's um, the best stuff I have, and so I, I haven't been willing to rush it and just. Um, put it, you, you know, just put it up and, you know, not have the vinyl ready on release date and, and that kind of stuff. Um, I've wanted to do justice to the songs on that album. Um, and I think, I think we are, you know. Um, and things have come together in the last year. Uh, Nadia Reid and I had talked about her releasing the record um, before, but last year she she was releasing her own album so it didn't didn't make sense and we were going to release thought about releasing the album around that time but if we had we wouldn't have been able to team up with her to release the record because she'd be busy on her own um album so lots of things have just come together very nicely for this album it just feels like the right time to do it yeah nice i i think it, you're such an interesting creative for me because you have kind of like most people would either be able to craft, spend the time and craft the kind of music that you make and not really and and that's the thing they do and i think it's so interesting that you you almost have the mentality of like a um of like a working actor and you treat music kind of like how acting is as a business like there's there, there's lots of different mediums that your acting can go into in terms of shows you can tour around or vehicles you can put your stuff in like a you know for, for movie tv show all the way through to theater and musical to like street performance to all this stuff that really inspires me because i quite often get frustrated or i talk to a lot of people about the idea that it's such a tight box around music uh um in a sense of like the the pressure is just to do the same three things over and over, which is write a song, um, record it and release it, and then play it at a show. And then that's that's the cycle. As a musician, that's all you can do. So I find it really inspiring when you do things like Railland and a synthesized universe. But it's fascinating that again, I would assume people would either be one or the other, and you're this you are like a synthesis of both of these worlds. And it's interesting to hear you so at ease about both of them, which is really lovely. Well. Um you know, I never felt comfortable with the model. I love the reason I, I was always better at history um, at high school and stuff. And I studied history at university. And, um, but when I, when I got interested in music was because I discovered songwriting. And it was this thing that was, I hadn't, I'd been very vague about what I wanted to do in life. Um, up until that point and you know I was pretty okay at history at school so figured I'd do something whatever that whatever job that led to um, but I wasn't excited about anything and when I came across songwriting I suddenly didn't want to do anything else so that was the thing that drove me into being a musician because I just wanted to write songs I just thought it was the most um, powerful thing to do with my time but I never, while I loved songwriting, I was never comfortable with the format of being a musician. I just looked at it, and even as a, even as an optimistic nineteen-year-old, 
it still looked like chumps game, you know. So you mean I've got to work part-time jobs for the next 10 years and then I've, and then I've just got to play as many bars as I can around the world and either succeed or, or give up. Um, it, seemed, it seemed like a, a, tough, a tough gig. Um, I mean, the same way that to an actor, you know, trying to move to Los Angeles or something and wait tables. It, do, it, it doesn't, is, is this the best way? You know, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> is there not another way? And, and I tried to think, I tried, I, it's funny because, uh, you know, I was on the pace scheme in the, in the last, in his dying gasps. <laughs> and, and I had this great, um, I had a great mentor, Anthony Dika in, um, in Dunedin. And we used to talk about this and go, well, maybe I could do this differently. Maybe, maybe there's some other way. And we talked about, well, maybe I could make like some kind of, some kind of different sort of show that's sort of maybe like a, um, that you could do at conferences or something. I mean, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. And I tried to do a, um, tried to do a fringe festival show um, and I completely bombed. And it was the most terrifying thing I'd ever done. So that didn't work. And eventually I just had to make peace with the fact that I had to go and play as many bars as yeah. I could. And I also, because I had to get good. I, I had to get, I had to become a good performer. And, um, and I, yeah, I had to work part-time jobs. I had to work as a tour guide. I had to work as a bartender. Um, and, you know, I always started those jobs um, with lots of enthusiasm and then eventually became grumpy. <laughs> but, um, you know, and, and, you know, you have to, you know, it was sometimes hard working at Golden Dawn and serving people the same age as me who were successful creatives in a different sphere, like I guess advertising, or or you know the the actors that did have a good stream of of work, um, but years later, when I started doing these immersive shows and started doing things that used a different skill set, like it was really satisfying to realize that with Railland, for the first time, I'm using my history degree. I'm doing historical research on these shows. Um, I'm also uh, using skills I learned in tour guiding about expectation management and planning <laughs> these journeys and things. Um, and, you know, we put on bars at these shows and I go and apply for a liquor license and I design a bar menu. So it's like even the, the bartending. Um, so all these things that you end up doing, doing you can actually find ways to, um, to use them. And, I, you know, everybody will come into creative work with a different set of things that they um, that they can do, some things that they're naturally good at, some things that they want to be good at. And I just think you don't have to do things via the format, um, via the only format that seems to be available. Um, there, there will be ways that you know, strain, you can invent some strange new way of doing the thing. At the same time, you might, if you've got nothing better to do in the meantime, just do the format. <laughs> because, and that's what I had to learn. I just yeah. had to just do the format and I learned, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm able to do now unless I just played lots and lots of bars. And, you know, so grateful to bars that have music because it's not a great business to be in. But Similar to musicians, there are people who feel compelled to run music venues mm. and it provides the only place that people like us can learn, you know. It's, it it kind of links for me like your idea about the power of musicians being able to bring people into a space and spend their time like and that journey through those numerous bar gigs is the accumulation of that power essentially that allows you to leverage people into seats onto the train to, 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 to do all these things. Like you do have to accumulate that power somewhere. It's not something that you, I think anyone has any right to just because you give yourself a title and, and arrive at the place. Well, um, maybe, I mean, some people are just really awesome lucky when like they that. start. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, I had to, I had to learn to be, to be a good performer 
and and it just it just took time. It took lots of um, lots of playing to you know thirty people or less in small towns in America or um, on the west coast of New Zealand, and learning to read people that are that are quite different to me and and you know but trying to get some kind of idea on on whether they liked the show or not um it's also that i always repeat what um mike birbiglia said is that to be a stand-up comedian you have to be able to do your first hundred gigs completely bomb and walk off the stage and go i think that went okay (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah you have you do have to have a uh a slightly overly optimistic idea of yourself as a performer sometimes just to get through the, <laughs> yeah. the amount of gigs you need to do to be good, you know? So do you, th- all of this is a lot of like heady work plus like just pure admin graft plus time spent plus like investment and energy and all these things. It, where do you, are you able to, are you good at finding and enjoying like and while enjoying the fruits of all these labors, is is that something that you, do you have pockets of being able to really soak in the accomplishments that you've got or the or the moments you're in, or is it? It, 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 it to me seems like you, you would be forgiven for constantly be thinking about well, I'm doing this thing next, and I'm doing that thing next, and and I've I've designed this whole thing, so I'm gonna because I've thought, put so much thought into it. It must be hard to turn that off sometimes. Um, no, no. I mean, it's it's exactly what I wanted to be doing. I mean, I, I'm really fortunate that I'm doing exactly what I always wanted to be doing, and in some ways, I'm doing what I didn't know I wanted to do. Um, and you know, I, I mean, five years ago, I had to work and I had to work in part time jobs to make that happen, um, and I found that really challenging. Um, so I'm always just really grateful to be working, yeah. uh, to be able to be doing whatever task it is I have to do related to releasing an album um, and just go, great, this is my job. That's, that's great. Awesome. Um, I mean, that's the, that's the satisfaction really. Um, it's, it, you know, it's, it's everything it's cut out to be and it just, you know, if you can, if, if you can live off that, then that's, that's amazing, you know. Totally. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit just because there's I'm so I arrived in Dunedin just as like I think you had just left um, Skinny would be about to leave I'm pretty sure it was it seemed like I arrived at the end of something and then at the start of something else like Feastock really took off and and Fee Street really took off and all of Paul Cathro's bands really took off and did some awesome stuff but I arrived in Dunedin and everyone was singing in New Zealand accents and everyone's lyrics were really um, upfront and and were uh, like very descriptive and and I could hear the words most of the time uh, and it just seemed to me like this is a thing it almost is like oh these guys have just like either all sat together and just decided this is how it's going to be or or like this seems like a real scene thing and mm. I'm I'm I think I will be forever curious about that because some of my favorite music has those attributes and comes out of that time what what was your sense is probably one of the leading people because your your vocals and yourself singing is so upfront, um, especially in the earlier stuff. What was what was going on there? Like what? Where did this all come from? From your perspective, um, I think the world was still a bit more um, a bit less connected at that time, and I think you could get scenes that made really different music depending on which city you lived in. Um, which was really, which is really kind of cool, um, and I don't know if it's the same now. And and in some ways, it's it's much better that it's not that it's not like that. I mean, I I feel like um, my band and a couple other bands maybe struggled with some aesthetic things, like the value of good art, and like maybe an over reliance on like um, Photoshop and all these new computer tools that were helpful but not if not used in an artistic way um yes yeah, so I and you know like but it was it was just a really interesting it was an interesting scene that did things its own 
own way. We we felt quite frustrated that that it was really hard to um, get beyond that scene, like to get a listenership outside of Dunedin was quite tricky then. Right. Um, and that's that's part partially why many of us moved to Auckland because <laughs> um, at, at that time, you know, like there was still a, there was a lot more media and around, and Auckland was the media center. And if you did go to Auckland, you and if you could win over Auckland, then you by default won over the rest of the country. Because if you'd got, you know, if you got covered in Auckland press and you got played on Auckland radio, then you probably got played on all the other um, like indie radio stations as well. Um, and that felt quite unfair. Um, and that was kind of just an underlying challenge of that whole scene. Then again, I mean, we weren't all that good, uh, myself included. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and there was some things that weren't great about that scene. Um, you know, pretty pretty blokey. Um, but you know, it was interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, what a what a crazy thing. I mean, if if now there was one city where there were like five bands that all sang in. New Zealand accents, you'd go, well, how's that happening? It's like another country. Um, but I just think that, that that's how much more difference there was. I mean, we were always, whereas if you went to Dunedin five, ten years later, um, I think that bands were much more in tune with, uh, with the aesthetics and things that, like, there'd be there'd be maybe less difference. Um, you, you would almost say like a band from Auckland or Dunedin, they could be in the same scenes. You could maybe start to see more connections between um, between the music that different bands were making. I mean, it was the same thing in Australia as well. I really noticed Australia changed heaps when they changed Triple J um, because in the old era, Triple J had had sort of fostered and encouraged the um, Melbourne um, natural Australian accent um, electric guitar kind of music. And there's some great music from that and, and some bad music. Um, but it was, like, it was like going to a different planet listening to the radio station in, in Melbourne. Um, and, but when Triple J had a big review and said actually – our audience is aging and our average audience is a 37-year-old male. Um, we've got to stop playing these bands. <laughs> and, you know, there's, a lot, <laughs> there's lots of sad things about that. Um, but then I noticed that the difference between um, Australian radio and New Zealand radio became less noticeable actually. Okay. There's similar, similar sorts of waves of like production aesthetics you'd hear in New Zealand and in America and in Australia, they all, they all kind of went in the same, same waves. I just so, feel like it's, there's been this huge like corporate homogeneity thing that just everything is just like slushing together just at this yeah. level, you know, this corporate level of like right. we have we, money's a, a consideration. Right. And I think yeah. whenever that is just like everything just seems to be sludging together like that I just don't I don't see difference it's yeah I mean I see the positives of it as well I mean I, no, I don't think it's all corporate I think it, you know I would have loved to have had a better idea from the internet when I was in Dunedin uh, it's just like why don't people like my music um, <laughs> and it's like well your band name's quite weird and you have terrible album covers and you know you don't have that cool guitar sound that everyone else has um, it's like maybe I could have, if I'd have known that, I could have fixed the guitar sound um, and then maybe, you know, that would have been just a little thing to be able to get the music to more people. But And I think you can do that now. You can live anywhere in New Zealand and make music that responds to um, the aesthetic moment. I think that's exactly like this. But, but back then, you know, like there was a viable pathway to make your weird, weird stuff and just sell this, you could sell CDs. <laughs> and if you could Bring sell- Bring back the, CDs. And if you could, well, I, I still sell CDs. Is the new album going to come out on CD? Absolutely. You heard it here first. Absolutely. I mean, it's on vinyl as well, but 
Um, I still actually sell quite a lot of CDs. Awesome. Um, and I say to bands, sell CDs. You know, just give it a go. You'd be surprised. You won't sell them by post because when people see them on the internet, they go, <laughs> CD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then if you stand behind a merchandise table with a stack of CDs in front of you and they want to talk to you, then suddenly they will see this magical value appear in that CD um, and all of a sudden for that moment it will be worth $20. Yeah. <laughs> and they'll buy it, you know. And, and yeah. it's – so, you know, I, I still – and they, they work much better for um, musicians. Like the, the, there's a much better cost equation to um, making and selling them. Um, so it, it is worthwhile and it's a, it's, a, it's a tangible transaction you can have with people, you know. Yeah, totally. But yeah, I mean, like the the mid two thousands were an interesting time because it, you know you had a labor government that was encouraging the arts, and you had this really interesting point in the evolution of the music industry where um, it was possible to promote and um, distribute yourself um, quite independently, um, but also. CDs were at the highest selling point. You know, the, the, the CD sales were at the highest they would ever be. The structure be. was still there. So, yeah, like 10, if you go 10 or 20 years earlier, you needed label infrastructure to sell a bunch of CDs. Now you didn't need the same infrastructural support. You could be pretty self-reliant, but you could still sell a lot of CDs. And that's, you know, that whole era of bands that are now, you know... Um, you know that whole like fat freeze drop and black seeds and and you know for me like I loved um, good shirt you know that those are the things that made that those were the glimmers of hope that made the whole thing look viable when mm. I was a teenager um, and you know I'm not saying bring back those days <laughs> but I, I'm I'm just saying right now you can still sell CDs and why why shouldn't you. I bought both C a CD and some chutney from Scott Nicholson when the Nine Nine Express was going. Oh, he just great! Had, he just had CDs and some homemade chutney on the merch. I was like, I will take both of those. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Um, you're you're a, you're a fan of guitar. Yep. And but you're also, I think someone referred to you as like a like a a priest of the deluge, like a like a uh, you know what I mean, like a. a yeah, you're you're in the deluge cult, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean in yeah, a good yeah. way. Um, and so, what if you had to pick one? Uh, are you are you fully are you in? Would it be the deluge? Would it be the 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 synthesis and the and that style of music? Or would you do do you think does the guitar win out for you over the long term? I'm, I'm so interested in this question because I have I sold all my guitars for it. Oh, you sold them for a bunch of uh, for an Electron Digitact and a few other things. Oh, Jesus, yep, that would have cost all your guitars. Yes, cost yeah. all my guitars. <laughs> um, and I constantly think about this. Like, will I go back to buying a guitar? And like, is this? Yeah, how do you? Oh, look, where are my, you? My dream is to is to eventually have the technology that I can just move my arms and control the music and just stand there. Beautiful. And I can, I would love my, my dream would be to have a show that I can just get on a plane or you know a tr even better get on a long distance overnight train, um, maybe, maybe travel by ship between continents, um, but not be lugging six or seven heavy pieces of luggage and just, you know, walk on stage and control things with my hand, maybe through um, like some kind of theremin system, but the theremin was just sending MIDI information so the, that I could... The Elon Musk neural link theremin <laughs> attachment. <laughs> I, I, mean, oh, I mean, that makes it sound bad, but um, yeah, I mean, for me at the moment, I need both. I need, um, because the... The guitar was made in 1968, and so it represents, and it's a stringed instrument um, made <laughs> of wood, and it represents a time when we made things that can last, and we don't know how long electric guitars last yet, but I, I suspect they're probably going to last as long as violins have lasted. Um, and so, and we may never make things like that again, and so 
there's something really nice about having that. Um, and, and also the, it's an organic sounding thing and having the organic thing um, balances out the fact that I'm using drum machines and, and the deluge to do um, the electronic side of things. Because I love, I, I love having all the magic tricks um, that you can do with the deluge. Um, but yeah, there's something, there's something really grounding. I mean, I guess you've always got the human voice um, and, and that's always going to be the, the organic balance to all that digital stuff. But for me, for me, yeah, there seems to be something about having the guitar and, and the deluge. But, you know, I've also, you know, I've also got a stage piano in my set now. Oh, and really? So, yeah, so it's, it's heavy. Yeah, everything's heavy. <laughs> yeah. It's like you're, you're constantly trying to get minimalism into your flat, you'll throw all this stuff out and then and then it grows. It's the law it's the law of entropy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got it all down quite small at one stage. It was just deluge a little um, a little thirty two key MIDI controller behind the deluge and, and the guitar. But now now I've got three stations on stage and one of them one of them's a big a big piano, but the piano it's just you know it's the best thing to write on, and you can you can do so much more with the deluge by connecting a nice, really playable instrument mm. like a like a full sized digital piano. I was about to make an awful joke, and it's not nice to call Stu a big piano. <laughs> We've added a big piano, and it's like Stu's a real person, okay. <laughs> 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 no, he doesn't just hit things, okay? Yeah, well, I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, it's going to be exciting to, to have a band. I mean, the um, it's nice to have people, other people to share the lifting as well, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. That is a downside of the whole solo thing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk about, and we've kind of, uh, we've kind of flitted around it, but it's public transport. Mm. And you say... You, you, uh, a lot of stuff you've got out there is a, a, it, a, it is very evocative and you, you, you paint a lot of pictures and you have present a lot of feelings about public transport. But I want, uh, so I thought maybe I'd want to hear like less of the artistic and more of the intellectual thinking about public transport and maybe ask the question, what's the, what's the, is there a big um, like passion project idea that you have with public transport that you'd like to see changed? Is there some important thing you think people are missing and you, and you want to impact on? Or like, is there a big thing at that with your um, thinking about public transport? I just think we need real actual um, things to happen and, and soon, you, you know, like that. And that's, um, I think we need to, it's not that we need to stop, it's just, we do plenty of big ideas and, and lots of like projecting into the future and going, won't it be great when we have this or won't it be great when we have this? We need to just actually start doing things. So, so you know, the, the Auckland has improved so much and, and it's only visible really when you move away from Auckland and then you come back and you realise how good it is now. Um, but when I moved to Auckland in 2010, the reason I was able to to be part of it getting better was because somebody had decided let's buy some crappy trains from Perth, diesel trains, boring diesel trains, and let's put them on the tracks and just run them in Auckland. And they used to have like a sign on them saying 70% their the reliability, they had to say how often, how on time they were, and they were invariably like 65 to 75% reliable. Um, but that was the start because if they hadn't have done that, they wouldn't have got some bums on those seats and they wouldn't have been able to convince a, a national government, no less, to help them electrify the network. And now those trains are all electrified, the new trains, they're beautiful, they've got great painting on the outside of them. And between, you know, for six hours of the day, they run every 10 minutes. Um, whereas before, the most they ever ran was, a half, was every half hour. So you, but you've got to find ways to, doing, to do stuff. Um, I think often, especially in the political sphere, it's like, okay, 
we need to get elected soon, so let's make a big, nice picture of like, um, of what our train network's gonna look like um, in 30 years. And it's like, well, that's great marketing thing. And of course we will want that, but what are we doing now just to like start getting, you know, in Auckland, it was just a matter of putting on more buses, like put on more buses. Um, and, you know, try to make buses go every 15 minutes instead of every half an hour. Um, or, you know, if a place, I, I, you know, yesterday I saw a bus drive past and it said Langholm on it. And, like, I'll be, there wasn't a bus to Langholm when I first moved to Auckland, you know. It's like, let's just start putting buses and getting them to go places. And then we can figure out, I mean, the reason that Auckland has the luxury of thinking about putting in, a light rail network is because it's proved through the through putting heaps of buses on Dominion Road that people that no matter how many buses they put on Dominion Road, they'll use them, and so now they actually have to think about something else. Right. But I, I think we can just, yeah, I, I mean, I we can get caught up in the distant future, and then just always be living in two places in our minds: one, the distant perfect future and two, the unsatisfactory present. Um, but there's somewhere in between the unsatisfactory present and the distant perfect future, and that's um, making something slightly better now. Like a mundane minor solution. And, you know, that's, that's what Railland's about. That's why we get people to actually come with us. You know, like we got 130 people to sit at Britomart and take a train out to Papa Toy Toy because, um, and it was great because most people had, who went to that show had never been on a, tr a train <laughs> since maybe they were school kids and they had this really terrible perception of what taking trains was. So you had people going, wow, this is actually really nice now. Or, or you know, in, in Dunedin, you know, running a train uh, because even running it for one night and proving it's possible is better than no amount of like hypothetical drawings of what it could be like or um, or, or just, you know, angry, you know, like I, I'm, I can get as upset as anybody else about how, why we went a different way to Europe in 1950. You know, I've written a whole show about it, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole nother podcast. But it's much more important to figure out well, what, what can we do now, you know? I'm going to throw it, even though you've been talking about how we need to ignore um, theoretical future uh, ideas, I'm going to throw one at you and get your immediate reaction at it. Yeah. Autonomous cars, right? Cars without drivers. There'll right. probably be like a, there'll probably be like a double system where like, well, we can't have cars with drivers drive in the same places as cars without drivers because cars without drivers have no traffic. They go super quick. They just, they're on a grid. They do the thing. And then people will, this is follow my thinking. People will go like, well, my autonomous car drives me to work. And then what's the point in just it sitting around? I might as well just lap around the grid and, and I can hire it out to other people in my autonomous car. And then, okay, these are kind of like taxis. And then someone will be like, these are kind of like, public transport yeah yeah do you do you think at some time in the future autonomous cars will be thought of someone will say the government needs a fleet of autonomous cars as public transport well even i mean there's a there's a great diagram of how much space cars take up versus right. um a bus or versus a train oh with the people with the that, people okay yeah and but you can just replace the word car with autonomous car yeah. still takes up 13 so a car whether it's autonomous autonomous or not it takes up 13 times the amount of space um as public transport like physical space i mean it, it's just funny like the shift like i feel silly that i didn't think of that i didn't become interested in public transport earlier because i did i did three tours of the of the u.s um by car and I used to do the drive every time I do the drive from Chicago to Denver which takes something like 12 hours I just think I really just wish that we had autonomous cars so that I could load my stuff into this car at 9 p.m. after the gig 
go to sleep and wake up in Denver. Um, and then when I became interested in public transport, I realized there's a bloody train. <laughs> there's a train from Chicago You've to Denver. You've described a train. I've <laughs> described a train. Um, <laughs> these uh, trains exist now. <laughs> and, and also the best, the best candidate for autonomous technology is public transport because you can put it on you can put it on train tracks you can put it you can put it on um, reliable routes that don't need to change um, and that way you can take more people but you know we have these things now and I, and <laughs> you know we could move around the city so much better but also like um, you know people talk about oh let's do it let's do a trial of autonomous buses or something um, and it's like, well, why don't you just try first just putting some buses with drivers <laughs> on that route? Just normal buses. You can make them look as fancy as you like, but just actually just put some... Because the cost of drivers compared to the cost of designing and building autonomous technology. And, and you know, do we really want a world where we're, we... Um, I, we... We're, we... I mean, yay, let's get rid of how many jobs, you know. <laughs> yeah. Let's just, you know, uh, it's just, it's endlessly. Once once you've drunk the public transport Kool-Aid, it's pretty hard to go back to <laughs> uh, the so autonomous it's not the, vehicle It's not the Kool-Aid. deluge cult, it's the public transport cult. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it's so wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much. Um, this is the period where if you have like any uh, plugs that you like any specific things you would like to tell people about this is now the time where you can um, I'm giving you uh, encouragement to feel completely fine about plugging whatever you want to plug um, yeah well I'm my name is Anthony Tonin <laughs> I'm releasing a new album it's called Leave Love Out of This you can pre-order the vinyl deluxe vinyl with green Vinyl and an extra seven inch, or the CD um, from my website, anthonytonnen.com. That's beautiful. And I, I would say I really like the title of the album. Thank you. Yeah, it's a very thank good you. one. That's okay. Um, thank you so much for. Uh, for um, thank you. Thank you for your time. Oh, and one last thing I want to tell you, because I haven't told you before, is when, and very quick, Brad and I lived in London for a few years. Um, oh, yeah. And we both turned 23. While we were over oh, in London, right. obviously big fans of that song. Oh, cool! I will tell you that there is a traumatized group of Liverpudlian students in a, I think it was like a tiki bar on a Tuesday night. Uh, we had gone up in the to see the War on Drugs and the ca- the concert had been cancelled, but we went anyway, yeah. packed with a lot of fun goods to have a fun night, and it ended with us um, finding out, stumbling on someone else's twenty third birthday at a bar with no one else there. Yeah, and saying you guys have to shut the fuck up because we have to just sing you this song from our yeah. thing. So there are some, you, 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 oh, you, wow. your music has been passed uh, very dubiously um, in many scenarios across our, our lives. So thank you very much for providing that. Oh, that's great. That's really <laughs> great to hear. I always get some good stories from 23. It's amazing how it still travels. It's great. It's a beautiful song. Thank, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>